Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. I'm Tanya Acker. Welcome to the show. In her new movie, How It Feels to Be Free, filmmaker Yorba Richin tells the story of African-American women artists who didn't just change the culture, they changed the country. They are women who were canceled before that was even a thing that people cared about. And they are women who thrived, who survived, and who also showed the rest of us how it's done. They are trailblazers. They are influencers. Before we started calling people influencers, they are a part of our history, a part of the fabric of this country. Frankly, they are a part of what makes us so great as Americans. Please join me with my conversation with director Yoruba Richin. Welcome to the show, Yoruba Richin. Your movie is so rich. And by that, I mean, it tells the stories of these African-American entertainers, uh, Lena Horne, Cicely Tyson, uh, Nina Simone, Diane Carroll, Abby Lincoln, Hattie McDaniel and her story in there. Uh, It's executive produced by Alicia Keys. Tell me why you made this movie. Well, I made this film because when I read the book in 2014, uh, The book is called African-American Female Entertainers in the Civil Rights Movement. And I I read the book and I immediately thought it could make a great film. And the reason why I got excited about it was because I had never seen uh, the story of the the entertainment industry uh, through the lens of Black women's experiences, A. B, that it wasn't a biopic of these women who all have like very fascinating lives, but really looked at how they reshaped representation in their particular time period and field and see their political work and how their political work was both on screen and off screen. Um, and so I loved all those, that mix of politics and entertainment and of their trailblazing you know, careers and how they set the stage for the renaissance uh, that we see of Black women uh, in storytelling today. And it spans such a broad history. So if you think about the world that Lena Horne grew up in and the world that Diane Carroll grew up in and then Pam Greer, and again, you know, you've got commentary and observations by current artists, uh, Lena Waithe. I thought that was funny when she said that somebody thought that she was named after Lena Dunham. <laughs> we all grew up thinking that <laughs> Lena Horne was like the queen of the That's world. That's right. That's right. Uh, but when you look at a story like hers, you know, there was something she said. I thought it was so powerful. You know, she insisted they wouldn't make her play a maid. She insisted on not being a maid, but they really wouldn't let her do anything else either. She was kind of this butterfly exactly. on the wall. Uh, What was it like for you gathering some of these stories? Yeah, you know, one of the things I love about documentary filmmaking is that, A, you think you you know know something and then you dive into it and you find out all this other stuff, which blows your mind. So exactly, like I'd always known that Lena was, you know, the first Black woman to sign a contract with a studio and it was a groundbreaking contract because she uh, didn't refuse to play a maid or servant, or, you know, somebody in the jungle, as her daughter says, a jungle citizen. But I didn't realize what that meant is that she was 
was not able to do anything else. They didn't give her any other roles because they were too, you know, scared of the Southern market. The Southern market would cut out her roles. They were also too scared of presenting this beautiful, sexy Black woman uh, to these audience. What, what, what would that do? What would, it, what would it mean? But the other part about it is that she also got backlash from the, the Black actors out there who were t- playing those roles and had for years. So if she refuses to play those roles, you know, then what does that mean? Are there going to be any more roles for, for Black actors? You know, not everybody's going to be Alina Horn. Um, and, and so that was fascinating to, to understand. And then really what I began to see as I told the stories of these women is that there's always a little bit of progress, right? And this is kind of emblematic of what we see in this country, what our history in this country anyway. There's a little bit of progress and then there's some backlash or then there's a, you know, two steps back. So all these women are breakthrough artists and then they also receive backlash from not just people, not just white people, but people, but black people, African-Americans, people in their own community. I want to unpack uh, the first part of what you said, because I think it's so important when you were talking about how Lena Horne would, uh, you know, there's a part in your movie where she talks about how she was only, uh, she shot these incredible musical scenes and the way they shot the film and the way they, uh, the, the, the way they shot her pieces as they did was so she could be excised and cut out because Southerners didn't want to see a black woman who was not a maid, not there to, uh, as one of your participants described it, uh, kind of enforce or prop up white womanhood. She was, Uh, a woman in her own right. And so when you juxtapose what was happening to African-American artists who Southern theaters and Southern audiences said, you know, we're not having that, they were canceled. Uh, What do you think about when you hear the current conversation about cancel culture today, (laughs) which, which, you know, is usually focused on people further to the right being upset about the fact that folks are complaining Tell me what your response is to that. <laughs> exactly. I didn't realize you were going there until you said canceled. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, out, it's an outrage that that's been used uh, where our experiences, our existences, our representation has been canceled, you know, throughout, throughout the, the history of this country. Like, you, you want to talk about cancel culture? Like, we can tell you about cancel culture. You know, it's that appropriation that always happens and then it's twisted and then it's made to, you know, to actually um, delegitimize our experiences as black people, as women. So, yeah, that's what I think about that. But what's also fascinating about the way you tell these stories and the context uh, in which you put the stories of these entertainers is who really did much more than that. I mean, they were pushing the envelope culturally. They were pushing the envelope politically. Uh, You've got someone like Nina Simone who did not fit the norm. You know, she, uh, for those in the know who know what I'm talking about, Nina Simone, like me, uh, we were four, you know, four C girls, like, you know, kinky haired, brown skin. And she said, you know what? I'm beautiful. And I'm going to celebrate that beauty in a time when that was not popular. I mean, even in black culture, did anything surprise you uh, as you were telling these stories and learning more about these women? 
Yeah, I mean, the uh, and I, I too am a 4C girl. <laughs> and so, you know, Nina, and I've been obsessed with Nina Simone since I discovered her and her embrace of her Blackness and, and her beauty and putting that out there and how it um, reshaped how we saw ourselves as Black women, the effect that it had on, on us. Um, you know, I think with Nina, that is what surprised me is that Abby Lincoln actually was uh, a little bit before Nina and was at that point had put out some of the most political songs um, and put herself out there politically and also embraced, went through a transformation where she threw off the sort of Hollywood, because she had been in a, in a movie, she'd worn Marilyn Monroe's dress. They were trying to make her into the next Lena Horne. Um, and she, she rejected that. And she went natural, uh, you know, with her hair and with her looks and embraced her Black beauty. And so that was surprising that she had actually come a little bit before Nina Simone. And, and her story, I think, is has not been told and is really unknown. I agree with you. I learned so much more uh, about each of these women, her in particular. I mean, there was a lot about the ground she broke, uh, the way she got a lot, of, took a lot of backlash for being vocal in her art and her music in a way that a lot of uh, male artists, uh, John Coltrane, her husband, Max Roach, uh, others perhaps uh, did, did not, Miles Davis. Um, but let's go back to something else you said, because you talked about some of the backlash that uh, some of these women faced in the black community. Uh, Diane Carroll, for instance, when she played the character of Julia, upper middle class black woman. It was not a story about black trauma um, and black trauma certainly is real. But one of the things that she said, uh, she talks about in the documentary, is that she believed that they had the right to tell another type of story, too. Tell me a little bit about why you think it's so important that people see the breadth of African-American experiences. Yeah, I mean, that's such a, that was so poignant, you know, uh, that she said, you know, she acknowledged the criticism. She said, you know, perhaps they're, they're, they were, you know, right in some ways, but we can tell a multitude of stories about ourselves because we are a multitude of, we are not a monolith. We have all different kinds of experiences. And as actors, as entertainers, as writers, as directors, we should be allowed the full breadth of our experience. And some of that, and also we should be allowed to have, even if, uh, you know, it involves fantasy or aspirational, you know, what they call aspirational shows, we should be allowed to have that too. And, and Julia was one of the first, the first places where that happened, the first shows where that happened. What did you want to be when you were growing up? Well, I actually, I actually was a theater person. I was an act. I did a lot of acting. My mom was a playwright. So I grew up in the theater. So when I was little, you know, small, that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be an actress. So maybe that's also why I did this film. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you were a little, uh, it's interesting also, especially since you had a, uh, you come from a family in the arts. What was your favorite movie growing up? Because again, something that's so interesting about your film, you tell these stories, you tell a great and very rich story story about American history and where the country was and how it's gone through these different cycles. And also, you know, without kind of using these words, 
uh, you explain why representation matters, even though like it's not a big hashtag, it's implicit. I think it's what the movie is about. So that leads me to ask you, when you were a little girl, like going to the movies, what did you see and what did you love? Like what excited you? Yes, I have to say, I was a big musical person. <laughs> so I remember, you know, going to see Hair. My mom took me to Hair and Fame. And, you know, I loved watching uh, West Side Story was like my favorite. And I saw it, you know, I'd watch it in the, in the, um, on television when it came on the movie. But then the play came on with Debbie Allen in when I was in third grade. And we got seats up by like the third row seats because they used to have standing room seats on Broadway. And my mom used to get the $10 tickets and then we would always get a seat. And so I saw many musicals. So those, those pieces really influence what entertainment can do, what it can do to you, you know, how it can make you feel um, and take you into worlds that you didn't you know, know existed or worlds that you didn't have access to. Um, so th- when I was smaller, those were definitely some of my favorite, my favorite pieces, my favorite films. What'd you think of Gone with the Wind? Oh gosh, I don't even know if I've ever watched that full. Me neither, I haven't. I have. I, I, <laughs> I've tried like three or four times, yeah. Dora, but no I joke. Mean, why, why should I watch that? You so, know? Let's, so, so this is something you talk about in the film. Uh, Lena Horn says, I'm not going to play a maid. There are generations. I mean, there are African-American actors who only had access to those roles. Hattie McDaniel won an Oscar uh, playing a movie. And I, I really, I mean, no disrespect to her. I honor Hattie McDaniel. I can't get through that movie. Yeah. By the same token, you explore how I guess, you know, I think someone, maybe it was Halle Berry or somebody in the movie says, you know, Hattie McDaniel and some others are really in their feelings when the thing that they've been doing for so long is all of a sudden not good enough anymore. Uh, It's not the right thing to be uh, doing. As a filmmaker, how do you approach like kind of telling that whole nuanced story? Because it's important, you know, we've got to respect the Hattie McDaniels, but also I think, you know, be, have an authentic response to it. Absolutely. And it's similar with black exploitation too, right? Which we talk about in the film that, you know, similarly, a lot of like Cicely Tyson, the great Cicely Tyson, who just, who just passed, had a very big critique about uh, black exploitation. And we look at that tension in the film. Um, but this is something that, you know, because we have so little representation, even today where we have more than we've seen in the past, because we have so little representation, it's always a contested battle. And the, 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 the fact is, until that changes, until we have more representation and we have a wider array of stories, um, I think that's going to that's gonna continue because the, you know, one story or one uh, type of character people think will represent all of us. And I think that's changing a bit, you know, and Lena Waithe says it in the film. She's like, we need to be able to have villains and heroes and tell a multitude of stories. And of course, a big part of that is having more of us behind the camera where we can write and direct those stories. Because telling the way that you tell these stories and the way that you uh, present kind of the full panoply of experiences, I think is something that is really unique. I mean, for instance, no one said that 
white women had to choose between uh, a Marilyn Monroe type and a Grace Kelly type. And, you know, there were all of these sort of different nuances of, you know, iconic Bette Midler. Um, So, you know, certainly we've got room for a Pam Greer and a Cicely Tyson and a Diane Carroll. Um, And then, you know, if you think about it today, a Lena Waithe and a Kerry Washington and a... But let's, I, I want to go back to you, because when you talk about the fact of representation, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about who's in front of the camera, but stories get told. Uh, editing happens. You know, the folks who are, pro- who are made prominent, those are decisions that are generally made by people behind the camera. There are not a whole lot, there are more, certainly more than there were 10, 15, 20 years ago, Um, but there aren't a whole lot of African-American women who are telling these stories behind the camera. So tell us a little bit about your your path. Um, What made you realize that you could do this? Yeah, I mean, I didn't, I'd always loved documentaries. As I said, I grew up in the theater. I started out, you know, I went to to performing arts school. I did a lot of theater in college. I started directing some. And of course, it was when I when I started directing some is when I realized, you know, oh wow, the really the power to tell these stories is behind, is being uh, not necessarily in front, but behind. And so that whetted my appetite for that. But in terms of documentary, I'd always been interested in documentary, uh, loved it, but it never seemed like a career path. Um, it wasn't until the 1990s when the cameras uh, got smaller and more user-friendly um, that I started making videos uh, um, really for class. And it really became, you know, the process really touched the different parts of me that I love, the doing research, talking to people, figuring out how to tell a story creatively. Uh, and that was in my, in my mid-20s. And that is when I decided I was gonna try to pursue this. Um, luckily, I had uh, a mentor in a great documentary filmmaker who's no longer with us, St. Clair Bourne, who was the first person to hire me, um, and I learned from the ground up. And I, you know, freelanced and, and worked on uh, different programs. And then I went over to the news side, um, and I was there for four years at ABC News um, and at Democracy Now!, and I learned, you know, about, uh, you know, it's a different pace, it's a much quicker pace. I was able to write and produce, uh, work with camera people and, and editors, but I always wanted to go back into, you know, knew I wanted to do what at that point we called long form television. And so I uh, was able to get a, a, a journalism fellowship, which put me on the path for, to making my first film, which took five years. Um, and my first film is about uh, South Africa and land reform, and it aired on POV and PBS. Um, and then I, you know, made my my next film uh, after that. You know, and this is the first film you don't know what you're doing. It's you know, it's trial by fire. But that's that's how I started. What was the hardest part of all of this? People are going to watch you and say, like, you know what? I want to make a movie. I've got these stories to tell. I want to tell tell people a little bit about how hard it is and how you got past the hard parts. Yeah, I feel like there are two hard parts, two big hard parts. One is financial, right? So how are you going to fund this film? A lot of times funding 
Uh, the reason why documentaries can take so long is because you're looking for funding and you have to, so you're looking to fund a film and you have to support yourself. So there's two parts to the funding. It's funding your film and funding yourself. And that can be challenging. You know, at one point when the economy crashed uh, previously in 2008, I was in the middle of making the film, trying to finish it. And I had to, you know, the job, I'd been freelancing jobs, dried up and I started temping um, and, and was temping. And this is after I'd, you know, had a lot of success. I'd gotten a Fulbright. I had, you know, gotten this other journalism fellowship. You know, I thought I was on my way and I wasn't, you know, I was in my mid thirties and I had to figure out how I was going to pay the bills. So that uh, can be challenging. Um, and then also though, and in some ways this is even the bigger challenge because it's psychological. It's the challenge of, uh, you know, when I started, there were very few people who looked like me who I could look to uh, and say, oh, they've made a career in documentary film, right? It was just much fewer. I mean, for everybody, I mean, the industry has really grown, but also too, uh, with that growth and with, you know, with uh, a knowledge that these, that the industry needs to diversify, that it's, it's been much more welcoming to people of color. We still have a long way to go. But when I started in the 90s, there were very, very few. So um, the, and when you don't have that model, when you can't see yourself, you know, there's, you have the imposter syndrome. Am I really good enough? Is that one film a fluke? Is anybody gonna like my next film? Am I even a filmmaker? I didn't go to film school. I didn't go to journalism school. You know, all these things, all the things in your head. And that can be very challenging. And you have to overcome that because making films are, is a risk. It's an artistic risk and it's a financial risk. What about the risks in your choice of subject matter? Do you ever uh, worry as some of the women who you uh, portrayed talked about, do you ever worry about being pigeonholed. Uh, there was that great scene where Abby Lincoln is uh, talking about the interview she had with the white film critic who basically says, you know, you're relying too much on your nigritude or yeah. however he put it. And she's like, I'm telling you the story. I'm telling the stories of my life. Do you ever think about that? I don't want to be pigeonholed because I do like to do, you know, I have interest in a range of different stuff. So I don't want to be pigeonholed, but I don't think about that because part of my, what I want to do and the, the risk that I've took, that the risk that I've taken to be in this industry is because I have story ideas and, and voices and the stories that I want to tell. And I, you know, think I have a track record at this point that people are interested in those stories. And I know they're interested in those stories. You know, they, the, the gatekeepers want to sometimes tell you that they're not or, you know, not fund you, but I know that they're interested in those stories, that there's a, there's an audience for it. Um, that's the biggest, that's one of the most fun parts of it is seeing how people respond and seeing the excitement, uh, and the hunger for these kinds of stories. How do you think the, uh, gatekeeping has changed over the, let's say the past 10 years? Yeah. And when I say gatekeeping, you know, for, uh, my audience, I'm really, I'm talking about, you know, the process of getting something greenlit, the process of having somebody believe in you, even if you don't necessarily look like them or remind them of them when they were coming up in the biz. How do you think all of that's changed in the last decade or so? Well, the, one of the big changes is technology, right? So 
we, when I was starting out, you know, there was no streaming cable was, you know, barely showing uh, documentaries. It was really PBS. Um, and so the technology, which we know has, has a lot of problems and, and, and issues, but has also really opened up a lot of different places where people can have potential to, uh, you know, broadcast their stories or, you know, put up their films themselves uh, on the on the internet. So that's really broadened out. And the gatekeepers, in some ways, that means that they're less gate, there's less gatekeeping because people can just, you know, make a film and put it up there um, or put it on their YouTube channel or, you know, what have you. But with the sort of more traditional funders and gatekeepers, there is an acknowledgement that you know, that the industry needs to diversify. I mean, we're better than that in terms of diversity. And I think the numbers show we're, you know, we're ahead than we're, we're further along than the, um, you know, fiction Hollywood industry, but there's still a long way that we need to go. And so there's a, at least an acknowledgement of that, I think, in a lot of the funders and in the, in the broadcasters. You know, you would have to look at the numbers to see in terms of how they're actually changing, um, but I think there's an acknowledgement and I think that there have been people that have been brought on into some of these key places, um, who, you know, who are instituting that. I want to go back to your film for a moment, uh, how it feels to be free. And one of the things, one of your participants says it better than I will now, but essentially how so many of these political, racial, cultural, culture wars were fought through black women, um, kind of using us as uh, the proxies for this side or that. Going back to Lena Horne, uh, when I was little, like my mother was obsessed with Lena Horne and Diane Carroll. So all of yeah. the, like we had the Betamax of Claudine. I've seen that movie <laughs> yeah. like 50 times. Yeah. But there's a story that I don't know if a lot of people are familiar with. I guess it was certainly big news at the time. She's in a restaurant. Someone is serving her. There's a white patron who says, you know, I'm, I, help me. And they're like, excuse me. You know, the server says, I'm helping Ms. Horn. And the white patron says, uh, you know, I don't care about that N-word. And Lena Horn hears this and like throws an ashtray or like throws yeah. something at this guy and draws blood. And it's so funny when you think, especially for African-American women in the public eye, how you have to like walk that line between standing up for yourself, but then, you know, don't do it too much because Absolutely. you might be perceived as angry. You That's know, it's right. just impossible for me, like, you know, less than a month after the Capitol riots where the capital of the United States was taken over, not to juxtapose the way you know, the anger of some groups is considered and certainly anger by black women. What do you think about kind of breaking down these caricatures of black womanhood that have been propped up for so long? You know, we had a section in the film uh, where we talked about that and in one of the cuts, um, the angry, you know, how Nina Simone was perceived as angry, Lena uh, angry and what that trope was, because that's certainly a trope that we know exists. And, uh, and fortunately, it was one of the one things that we had to leave on the cutting room floor. But that is the way, as you just said, who, you know, certain people are allowed to be angry and others are not. Uh, and Black women have been um, stereotyped and caricatured around their anger when they show anger, even though that anger comes from a very real place. Um, 
as we you know see in this Lena Horn incident that you just you know described. So that's a way to dismiss. You know, it obviously comes out of racism and sexism, and it's a way to dismiss our experiences and to dismiss the racism and sexism that this country was built on. I mean, that's what, you know, it's just, it's as plain as that. Um, And, you know, we're told that we have to listen to, at least even before the insurrection, uh, you know, we needed to listen to the anger of the white working class and they had been ignored and they had been, you know, and, you know, there's maybe uh, some, some stuff to that, but as I said, our experiences of racism and sexism in this country is anger that, you know, has been dismissed historically. And so it's a very privileged position of who could be angry in this country. You told a story about African-American women who blazed a trail. And I'm just going to say this, you yourself are blazing a trail uh, because you've now set forward this project And there are going to be other people, other Americans of all stripes. Everybody needs to see this movie because it's a valuable part of American history, frankly. But what uh, I have to say, I feel really gratified that young black girls are going to see this movie, learn more about the beauty in them, and they're going to know it was made by you. And so I think that you've opened up a whole other potential for a whole lot of other girls. So thank you for making this movie. And frankly, I just feel better for having seen it. I feel richer for having seen this movie. So thank you. American Masters, How It Feels to Be Free. Uh, It is on the American Masters website, and it's also going to be streaming on PBS Documentaries Prime. Everyone must see this. Yoruba, before you go, tell us what you're working on next. What's your next project? Mm. So uh, it's a bunch of different stuff that's happening, but I am starting to pick up a project which we had set down through COVID, and it's about an unsolved civil rights murder in Natchez, Mississippi. I'm co-directing it um, and looking at the failure of the state, of the FBI, to solve uh, the, this case and a bunch of other cases um, of unsolved civil rights, racist, terrorist murders. You must come back on and uh, talk about that. My mother's from Mississippi. Oh, wow. One more thing about the film that really struck me. Lena Horne goes to Mississippi with Medgar Evers. uh, And Medgar Evers says, I love this country. I love Mississippi. And then shortly after that, she learns uh, about his murder by uh, racial terrorists. It was so poignant for me because, you know, I don't know where your family's from. My mom's from Mississippi. My dad originally born in West Virginia. They moved to Pennsylvania. But I always hear my mother kind of talk about, you know, how much she loves it. She loves the South. She loves that land. She looks it all in the eye. But what your movie does is really strike home how these stories of African-American people are American stories. They're stories about people who loved this country and wanted to make it work for everybody. Tell us, what is one thing that you want people to take away from this film? So I want people to understand that, I mean, you kind of just said it, that our stories are American stories um, and that our uh, history and experience as Black women in this country has always been for pushing democracy and creating more democracy in this country. 
we're start now starting to you know acknowledge that this even though the the rhetoric is around democracy this was not a democratic country when it began and black women have been at the forefront of pushing for more more democracy and also at the forefront of cultural innovation that's what i'd want people to take away from this well you are continuing the tradition so thank you for this movie uh looking forward to the next and thank you so much for being here yoruba uh stay safe be well and everyone will go see this movie you must see this movie you'll you'll feel so much better after you do thanks for being here yoruba thank you tanya the Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me. Sam Fergoso is my producer. Andre Lynn is my editor. Cole Mitchell is my composer. Sydney Freeman is my production assistant. And my show dog is Maximus Justice, also known as Max. If you like us, please go on to iTunes and leave a five-star review. Maybe I'll even have the chance to read it on the air. I will give you my hugest and most profuse thanks if you do. Thanks for listening, everybody. 